Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the first 14 verses of Galatians 3. Uh, this is our seventh Sunday uh, in the book of uh, Galatians. It marks about a halfway uh, in our time in Galatians, and uh, I've really enjoyed uh, helping preach through it and studying it in different ways than I have before. But uh, as we move to Galatians uh, 3, we're moving to a different section uh, than we have before. We're transitioning, and it takes a bit of a different tone. What you'll notice about uh, Paul in the book of Galatians is that uh, his message is not a linear one. Um, Paul doesn't write and say, hey guys, here's four things I really want you to know and list them out uh, for us. Uh, His logic, his argument takes a very meandering path and he returns over and over to some very core themes which we will see this morning some of the things we're talking about this morning we've covered before in previous uh, chapters, but he does it in a bit of a different way uh, this morning. And so let's give attention to uh, the reading of God's Word in Galatians 3. I'm going to begin in verse 1 and go down to verse 14. Hear God's Word to us. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us by your word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We ask boldly that you would do for us what we are powerless to do for ourselves, that you would bring life out of death, that you would illumine your word to us, and that it would be life for all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in a disagreement or in a fight that lasted more than one round. You and your spouse or you and your friend, you and your roommate, 
got mad at each other one night and you had it out, got to a good place and you went to sleep, only to wake up the next morning and you were right back where you began the night before. It's time for round two the next morning. Paul is in one of those places with the church, Galatia in a sense. Chapters one and two are round one of Paul's exasperation with the Galatian church. And you can think of chapters three and four as round two of his fury, the church. You'll notice similarities in the strong language that he uses to begin chapter one and chapter three. Chapter one, Paul is astonished that they have uh, abandoned the gospel, that they are deserting the gospel of grace. He says that those who are preaching the false gospel, let them be accursed, let them go to hell. And he picks up at the first part of chapter 3 and he says, Oh, you fools, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul is coming back for round 2, he's letting them have it again. But this round is a little different. Chapters 1 and 2, round 1, was an autobiographical one. Paul talked about his own experience. He spoke from his own story about how he was converted and about how God rescued him from his sins. He talks about his opposition to Peter and how Peter was not in step with the gospel. But he turns from autobiographical to theological in chapters 3 and 4. Round 2... It's going to be a theological one. And to be honest, it can get dense. It can get uh, hard and confusing at places. But in essence, Paul is making the exact same argument that he made in chapters 1 and 2. That we are made right with God through faith alone and Christ alone and not by works of the law. That we are connected to God through faith and not by performance. So Paul starts in verse 1. He says, you fools. What are you doing? Have you been bewitched? This is, uh, the word bewitched is a dark word. It comes from the realm of sorcery and witchcraft. It's the only time in the New Testament that Paul uses this word. And I think Paul uh, is being a little tongue-in-cheek here. Paul is saying the only possible way that you could ever be acting the way you are acting is as if you were under some kind of spell. You know, I've thought this about my kids before. The only possible way that you could be acting the way that you are acting is if you were under some sort of spell. That you were, uh, there's some voodoo stuff going on here. And to be honest, my kids could say this exact same thing about me in return. But Paul is saying to the Galatians, you are not acting in your right mind. You are spellbound under some irresistible power. You are acting insane. And he tells them how they're acting insane beginning in verse 2. Paul says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, it's nearly impossible that any who were in the church at Galatia were actually there when Jesus was crucified. So Paul is not saying that they were actually physically present when Jesus was crucified, but Paul is saying that through the vivid preaching of the word, that through his preaching, that it was as if Jesus was crucified in their midst. Paul's preaching of the gospel to them was so direct, so explicit, 
so honest and so unwavering that it was as if Jesus were crucified in their midst. Paul says, I gave you the foolproof gospel. I didn't hold anything back from you. And so now, let me ask you this one question. It's funny that Paul says, let me ask you this one question, and then he asks them five questions. You can see uh, he's, uh, he's frustrated with them. He can hardly contain himself, and so he lists off this series of questions that he wants them to answer. Let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Spirit by works, or was it hearing, or by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Paul asked, how did your spiritual life begin? Was it through you working? Was it through your effort? Was it through your obedience that you earned, that you received this new life? Was your conversion your work, or was it the work of God through faith? Paul says, you were born again to a living hope. You received the Spirit. You were justified by faith alone, not by your works, but through faith. In fact, your works and your effort did nothing but prove the fact that you needed to be rescued. This whole thing began by the work of the Spirit in your life. Now, how do you think that it's going, that you were going to finish it with your own effort? In 1858, a French tightrope walker named Henry Blondin made international news by crossing Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Thousands gathered, heard the news that he was going to cross, and they gathered for his first attempt, uh, and many were sure that he was going to die, that this was really a death sentence for him. But of course, he was successful. I'm telling you the story. It wouldn't be much of a story if he died. Um, He was successful, but he couldn't leave a good thing alone. And so Blondin returned many more times. And so as if walking 1,300 feet, Uh, on a two-inch cable above a thundering waterfall were not hard enough, Blondin wanted to increase the level of difficulty. And so while crossing, he would often lay down in the middle, only to get back up and to finish by running across. He crossed blindfolded. He once walked across holding a wheelbarrow. One time he decided he would take a table and chairs with him as he went across. Uh, At times he would stop in the middle hold on with one arm, climb back up, and then finish uh, his way over. My favorite was when he took a stove and a pan and he cooked an omelet in the middle for finishing uh, the span, walking across the span. But what might be the most impressive feat is that one day he showed up and he asked, does anyone want to ride across on my back? And unexplainably, Harry Colcord volunteered to take him up on it. And so Colcord jumps on his back, and he and Blondin take off across the tightrope. Now, someone asked me in the first service, did they make it across? Yes, they made it across. That wouldn't be a good story if they died either. But, uh, but I want you to imagine, hypothetically, imagine that Blondin and Colcord are in the middle of of, of uh, Niagara Falls, and Colcord says to Blondin, you know, this, is, this looks really easy. Why don't you let me off your back, and I will finish this myself. You know, you got me started on this, but I'm going to finish this on my own. I think I've got what it takes 
go cross. We would say what Paul says to the Galatian church, you fool, who has bewitched you? You have a vast overestimation of your own abilities. How on earth do you think that you were up to finishing what Blondin began? Paul is trying to do the same thing, to expose the foolishness, the absurdity in the approach that the Galatian church is taking. These Galatians are trying to get off the back of the gospel of grace and trying to live and grow in their own power. They think, you know, I know I'm saved by Jesus, but I'm sure that I've got to do my part that I've got to finish things up for them, uh, for Jesus. They and we think, are tempted to think that our salvation is really a partnership. That our salvation is a 50-50 deal, that God does his part, and then I respond with my part. Paul is screaming at them. The gospel is not a partnership. The gospel is not a 50-50 deal. It's not a 75-25 deal. It's not even a 99.99% God's grace and 0.01% your work. It's either 100% grace or it's nothing. God says, I've got to carry you the whole way or it will not work. And so he gives them three reasons why they shouldn't get off the back of the gospel of grace and try to walk the tightrope themselves. Why they shouldn't seek to complete what God began in them. And so the three reasons, or the first reason is that they already have everything they need. The second is that they are already the true children of Abraham. And the third is that if they rely on the law, they are under a curse. So first, Paul tells them to continue in the way that they began because they have everything that they are, they have been given everything that they need. There's this temptation as Christians for us to think that We're saved by grace, but we grow and are perfected by our works. That God begins it, but I have to get to work and complete it. It's like we have this view that, you know, Jesus has paid the upfront dues. Jesus has paid the entry fee into the country club of heaven. I get in by grace, but now I'm responsible for the monthly dues that we've got to maintain this status, that we've got to prove that we really mean, we're really serious about our faith by our works. The logic goes, he gets us in, but it's up to us to maintain it. And Paul's going to refute that. And what Paul is doing is getting to the relationship between sanctification and justification, the relationship between how one becomes a Christian and then how we grow as a Christian. Justification is our being declared righteous in the sight of God. Our sins are pardoned, and we are counted as perfect and righteous in the sight of God. This is a one-time declaration of God's free grace. And on the other hand, sanctification is that work of God in us over a lifetime to conform us into his image, a dying to sin and a living to righteousness. You'll notice that Sanctification takes the shape of resurrection. That there is death and there is life. There is death and there is life. I want to remind you of the illustration that Jason used last week to talk about the relationship between justification and sanctification because I think it's so helpful for us. Sanctification is like a little kid wearing his dad's shirt. 
The shirt that he is wearing is entirely too big for him, but the shirt is his. He owns it. It covers him completely. That shirt is his justification. He has all of the shirt that he will ever need. He is fully and completely covered. But he grows into that shirt. It's not that the shirt changes, that he needs another one. He needs to exchange it at some point in life, but he grows into what he already has. He takes hold of what is already his. He gets used to what he already has. As one theologian puts it, sanctification is the art of getting used to your justification. It is remembering again and again and again and again that you are saved by faith in Christ. That the old you is dead and that now you are alive in Christ. The temptation is for us to climb off the back of the gospel of grace to climb off the back of Jesus and to try to make things happen ourselves. We want to see progress and growth and development in a linear and routine fashion, but that is not what's given to us. As Martin Luther once said, progress as a Christian is to begin again. We think progress looks like victorious Christian living. Progress looks like us getting our act together. Progress as a Christian is not to grow beyond your justification. It is to grow further into it, deeper into it. It is to realize and grasp more and more in amazement that you are loved and accepted by God. Sanctification looks like a growing astonishment that God really does love me, even after all that I've done. It's pressing the reset button every day. And remembering again that we are saved by grace alone and Christ alone. You know, this idea that Jesus gets us in, but our work keeps us in, is a dangerous lie. But it's really easy for me to believe, and I would imagine for you as well. This is a battle that goes on in all of us every day because we think that God looks at us through this lens of performance. That God's up in heaven thinking, you guys better do something to impress me today. We think that if I love God, if I serve God, then God's happy with me. But if I have a bad day, then God can't possibly love me. And so we have this fixation and this obsession of trying to do something great for God. To walk across that tightrope ourselves. Because there is this internal voice of accusation that whispers to us that we're not enough that whispers to us that we are a failure, a voice of condemnation that says, you're a disappointment to God. And if anyone really knew you, you'd be a disappointment to them as well. But what Paul is telling them is that through Christ, they have everything that they need. You've been given the Spirit and that God is at work in you and that he promises to complete the work that he began. So that's the first point. They have everything that they need. The second point that Paul makes The second reason they are not to try to walk the tightrope themselves is that they are already the children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham. For the Jewish people, everything was tied back to Abraham. They looked on him as the father of their faith. They were the children of Abraham. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll see that God made Abraham all of these incredible promises that the entire world would be blessed through him. And as a sign 
of the promise and the covenant that God made to Abraham. He told Abraham to be circumcised and to circumcise uh, his male offspring after him as a sign of the promise. So the Judaizers might have come in and said to the Galatian Christians something like this, well, it's really good that you believe in Jesus, that's great and all, but if you really want to be a child of Abraham, if you really want to be in the covenant people of God, you must be circumcised just like Abraham was. And Paul goes to them and says, so you want to talk about Abraham? Okay, let's talk about Abraham. Abraham actually proves the point that I'm trying to make to you. Verse 6, how was Abraham made right with God? Was it through faith or was it through works? It was through faith. Genesis 12, Abraham is 75 years old and he's childless and God comes to him and says, I'm going to make a great nation from you. I'm going to bless the whole world through you and make your name great. In Genesis 15, God comes back to Abraham, who is 15 years later, he's still without a child, and he says, I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. I'm going to bless you beyond what you can imagine. And in Genesis 15, 6, it says that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God declared that on the basis of Abraham's faith that he was righteous, though he had not done anything righteous in himself, the status of righteousness was conferred upon him. Abraham hadn't done anything to be worthy of this status. He is essentially unrighteous and ungodly. He is not the model of virtue that we are to emulate. This is chapter 15. God's commandment to to be circumcised doesn't come until chapter 17. God doesn't count Abraham righteous by his performance, but by faith. He declared him righteous before he had done anything resembling righteousness. If Abraham was going to be righteous, it was going to have to be an imputed righteousness. God declares Abraham to be something that he was not and something that he would never become. Abraham's Abraham's life is a picture of what is described to us in the Heidelberg Catechism in question 60. Question 60 is, how are you made right with God? It's a question about justification. How are we justified in God's sight? And the answer to Heidelberg Catechism question 60 is this. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments and having never kept any of them, and even though I am still ever inclined toward all evil, Nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. What is the gospel for you? Even though I'm inclined toward all evil, even though I'm more messed up than I will admit to any of you, even though I've not done anything great for God, though I don't show any promise of doing anything great for God in the future, out of sheer grace, God grants to me and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. 
He sees me as though I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I was as perfectly obedient as Jesus was obedient for me. In God's sight, if you are in Christ, you are seen as though you have been as perfectly obedient as Jesus was obedient. So who are the children of Abraham? Paul says in verse 7, it is those of faith who are the children of Abraham. Who can call Abraham father? If father Abraham had many sons and many sons had father Abraham, how do you know if you are one of them? And so am I. How do we know? Paul says it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It is not those who do something to their body, but those who trust in Jesus. Abraham is the father of the people of God, not because he is the biological ancestor of the Jews, not because of a family tree, but because of faith. His offspring, his children, are those of faith. But lastly, Paul tells them, don't get off the tightrope. Don't get off the tightrope. Don't get off the back, or don't try to walk the tightrope themselves. Don't get off the back of the gospel of grace, because relying upon the law is a curse for you. To abandon the gospel of grace by relying on the law is to be under curse. Verses 10 to 14 pose a question for us to consider. If we are not saved by works of the law, but rather we are saved by grace, we're saved surely out of God's grace. And what do we do with the law? For example, if I'm not, if I'm not made right with God through my obedience to the ninth and 10th commandments as we confess to God this morning, if I don't become more saved, if I don't improve my standing, if I'm seen as perfectly righteous in the sight of God and I can't improve that, if I can't improve perfection, then what do I do with the law? If it's all by grace, of what use is the law? We will talk more about the law in the weeks to come, and I'm only going to mention an aspect of the use of the law of God this morning, but let us never think that the law of God is evil or a bad thing in any way. The law of God is beautiful and good and holy. It is from the mouth of our beautiful and good God, and it reflects his beautiful and good nature and character. Our problem with the law is not the law itself. We are the problem. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 7, that sin has seized the opportunity through the law, and it reveals sin. And us think of the law as a mirror, not just a normal, normal mirror that would hang on your wall, but think of the law of God as one of those 10x reflective magnifying mirrors. Think about those mirrors you have on your counter and you look at them and you're kind of astonished because your face is so big when you look at them and every pore, every wrinkle, every blemish, every spot you missed shaving is magnified times 10. And what you see is not a pretty sight. What you see is how ugly it gets. But it reveals the truth of who we are. If we, let the God, if we let the law of God read us and let it do its work, it will lay us bare. The law of God reveals the character and the goodness and the holiness of God, but it shows us how far we fall short. It shows us how unlike God we really are. 
How can you consider the ninth and tenth commandments and not think how unlike God I really am? How much I covet and how much, how unlike God I really am. While the law is very good at diagnosing the problem, at pointing out the problem, it cannot provide a solution to that problem. As one person put it, the law is a good mirror, but it is very lousy soap. The law can tell us that we are sick, but it cannot make us any better. To rely on the law to make you better is like using a leaf blower to clean your house. The leaf blower has power. It can stir things up, but it cannot make your house clean. All it will do is show you how much dirt you have in your house, but it cannot clean anything. The law brings us to our death. It condemns us. It shows us how much we failed and how much we cannot do what it requires. The law tells us what we ought to do, but it cannot and it does not provide us with what we need to do it because the law cannot provide what it requires. This means that we need something beyond the law, something more than the law, not another word law, but we need a word grace. We need not another voice of condemnation telling us to get our act together, telling us to do better, but what we need is a voice pardon, a voice forgiveness. We need one who would take the curse for us, who would fulfill the law in our place, and Jesus has done that for us. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He was obedient in every way that you and I were disobedient. And not only did he obey in your place, he took the, he took the curse of God in your place as well. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. To be hung on a tree was a sign of divine rejection. God the Son hung on a tree and was rejected by God the Father. And as we have a chance to reflect upon that, as we come to uh, the week of Good Friday and Easter, we can reflect on the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let us be reminded that Jesus became the curse for us. For all of the ways that we have sinned, for all of the ways that we have messed up, he took that upon himself on the cross. That he has given us everything that we could possibly need. In Christ, we are forever and eternally loved, forgiven, vindicated, and justified. And we will spend the rest of our lives remembering that over and over and over again. And as we come to the Lord's table, we come to begin again. We come to be reminded that Jesus was a curse for us. And that in him, we are given everything that we will ever need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in Christ, we are eternally loved and forgiven. That in him, we are justified. And so we pray that by your grace, you would remind us of that truth again and again, that it would sink deep into our hearts, and that you would, um, by your grace, 
allow us um, to be gracious people uh, that love you and that love our neighbor. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.